Romans chapter 8 is our passage. You know, it may not uh, be lost on you, it shouldn't be lost on you, that we are in an increasingly hostile environment for our faith coming from a multitude of sources today. It's really beyond dispute now that we quickly are moving toward an environment where the church in general and Christians individually will suffer more and more for our allegiance to Christ. There's a general cultural assault as there has been building for some time on the whole concept of your faith, your adherence, your allegiance to the Lord and to His Word, such that the, the pursuits of your life, the values that come from His truth, are generally mocked and ridiculed, and our beliefs are often misrepresented and distorted, portrayed in many cases as the very cause of all the ills of our society. They're labeled as intolerant, they're labeled as extreme, and as unloving and incompassionate. Consequently, Christians have become the object of scorn and hatred, so that whenever an Islamist walks into a bar in Orlando to murder people, somehow Christians are blamed. There's also governmental assault on our worship and our beliefs. Government encroaches more and more into our lives and mandates that we bow down to its idols. This week, of course, uh, highest court in another act of uh, judicial despotism, despotism, an expansion, if you will, of of judicial power. They, They declared that a Christian pharmacist must fulfill prescriptions for people that he knows will cause the death of their unborn children. Of course, recent rulings on the anti-abortion cases that have come to the court, all in favor of that practice or even in favor of gender confusion, have made it clear that the court kings over us now are not going to accept any bit of our worldview, but will do everything within their power to undermine our belief system and to mandate that we follow that doesn't stop there, because outside of our culture and even outside of our own government and country, there is a rising tide of Islamic terrorism who has made it their chief aim to kill and attack as many Christians as they can. And they are doing so with increasing frequency and effectiveness. We're moving into a time of unprecedented suffering in the Western Church, in the Church of America, and sadly, the church is completely unprepared for it, because there are still thousands upon thousands all around us who blithely gather in auditoriums across America each week, seeking to craft a message and a form of Christianity that will be culturally acceptable and even appealing to society at large. So that even some of them imagine a kind of Christianity that is so non-offensive to Islam itself that it is welcomed, not as, an, uh, not as a threat, but as an ally in the culture wars. In essence, theirs is an attempt to construct a Christianity that can expand and can grow apart from any suffering, not a kind of Christianity that survives underneath it. The end result is a church with a message 
that is almost completely caught off guard as suffering increases. The outcome of that is not yet visible, but it will be in short order. So many people have embraced a theology that assumes that God has promised some sort of prosperity either to our nation or to us individually, whether it is explicit or very subtle. Christians have bought into this notion that God's will for every believer is that we ultimately achieve some worldly happiness, some worldly success, some worldly health, some worldly comfort. And few churches seem to have a category for a Christianity where suffering is not only real, but especially a Christianity where suffering is actually God's plan for your life. The kind of theology that some are labeling these days as alarming at best and dangerous at worst, condemning those who would say such things. But as we began to see last, the last few weeks, the real danger is not in proclaiming that theology, but in rejecting it. The real danger is in denying this kind of theology because not only does it leave you unprepared for what we are facing increasingly in our world, but it leaves you completely disconnected from the theology of Paul, the theology of Scripture. This was not only Paul's theology, it was his life. He didn't just say these things, he lived these things. He didn't live in a, a, a world and he didn't walk around with a concept that somehow God was going to give him earthly comforts, earthly material blessings, earthly health or any of those things. In fact, he tells the Corinthians, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise. We are weak, but you're strong. We're held in, excuse me, you're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. And when we are reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This was all God's doing, Paul says. God is the one who is behind all of this. It is Him who's working out his plan to put us on display in exactly this manner. And despite all of it, Paul was unwavering in his faith and in his love and in his service, his devotion to God. And Romans 8 helps us to understand why. And today we're going to see even more than we have in the past few weeks, as Paul takes us deeper into his thinking, into his perspective, really into his theology of God, or we might even say his theology of suffering, to understand exactly how he could walk through life with so much suffering day after day, week after week, really not getting any better throughout his entire life until he faced in the final end his last years in a prison until he was beheaded. How could he go through all of that and not lose heart and not lose his faith and not lose his sense 
that God was still on the throne and that God had not completely abandoned and rejected him. Well, our passage this morning in Romans 8, 31 through 39 helps us to see that. And if you were to take just one statement from the whole section that might characterize this radical view of suffering that Paul had, that you and I need to embrace, it might be his statement in verse 37, that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We'll try to understand exactly what Paul means by that, but first, let me just help you by giving the entire context of these things that Paul's talking about. Because he lists here a series upon series of suffering that isn't just hypothetical in his mind. It is real. And he isn't saying hypothetically if these things happen. He's saying in these things. In light of and in reality, in these things, we're more than conquerors. That's what he says in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, excuse me, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, uh, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul has sort of brought us, if you will, to the, to the very pinnacle, as we said last week here at the end of Romans chapter 8. He's already told us back in verse 28 that all things are working together for our good to those who are called according to His purpose. He's already subsumed everything we experience in life and already promised us, if you will, a victory in it, a goodness in it, in everything. And He tells us in verses 29 to 30 that that this purpose of our goodness was laid out in eternity past and stretches all the way into eternity future until our eventual glorification but now he, he crowns all of this truth with this powerful, almost poetic section in verses 21, excuse me, 31 through 39 with a series really of five questions focused on two realities, the objective reality of the work of Christ and the subjective reality of God's everlasting love. The objective reality of Christ's work on the cross and the subjective reality of His love. Christ's work and God's love combine really in this passage for an unstoppable combination to assure each one of us that no matter what the darkness of our suffering, no matter how dire our circumstances, no matter how painful it is that the world comes against us, 
so much for our faith, we will never be separated from God's loving purpose and His eternal goodness. Christ's work and God's love, and Paul sets these two realities really in contrast to all the harsh realities of life. He presents all of it in these five questions, as we said, questions that don't suggest doubt when Paul asks them, but he throws them down, if you will, as a bit of a gauntlet challenging anyone who would dare deny the truth that he's sharing here. Basically, using questions to demonstrate how unquestionable are the truths that he has to share. To challenge anyone to present any kind of forcible argument, any kind of argument at all that could overthrow what he gives to us. Five questions focused on two powerful realities so that you and I can be assured of the unstoppable purpose of God's love for our lives. The first one is this, in verses 31 through 34, that we are more than conquerors because the work of Christ guarantees it. We're more than conquerors because the work of Christ guarantees us. If we're going to be prepared to endure the kind of suffering that's coming our way, we have to grasp the full extent of the settled nature of Christ's work on the cross and how He established for us this absolutely unshakable relationship between us and God. And so when Paul says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? He's talking about everything he said, really going all the way back to verse 18. He introduced this whole theme of suffering and he framed all of the suffering in light of God's overall purpose for us in creation and in eternity. And he caps it all off by telling us that through all of this suffering, God is sovereignly in control. That God isn't a passive bystander. That God isn't just watching these things unfold, but he's actively involved with every intimate detail so that we have no other conclusion but that God ordained the suffering that God ordained the hardship so that we can say with Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, others who have afflicted us, they might have meant it for evil, but God means it for good. So, so he has laid out all of this. And so his question here now is what else is left to say? If you have wrapped your mind around that, what shall we say? What other thing needs to be added? Well, Paul answers his own question really with another question, several questions as a matter of fact, and he uses these questions, as I said, to demonstrate the unquestionable nature of God's plan through all of this. Five of them, the first four really emphasizing for us Jesus' death on the cross as it provides for us this absolutely resolute and immovable legal standing before God that brings with it certain guarantees of our inheritance and His goodness. First, he says there in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, if Paul had just, if he had just left off the first part of that, if he had just asked you, who can be against you? Well, you would have all kinds of 
answers to that. There's all kinds of people who will attempt to be against us, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Not suggesting that there won't be, not suggesting that there aren't going to be. Paul doesn't come along and say that because God is on our side, somehow we're going to be spared from all trouble. But what he's saying is, in the midst of the trouble, it does not matter. This is a call, in other words, for you to see all trouble, all suffering, all difficulty, all strain that's going on in your life in light of God being on your side. If God is for you, any opposition really doesn't matter. No opponent, no challenger ought to be of any account. If you were to go out as an adult and challenge any toddler to a wrestling match, it shouldn't matter who they are, right? It shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter who the opponent is because they're all coming up against God. And if God is on your side, it doesn't matter. Who can be against us? In reality, Paul really has already given us the answer to the question. Back in verse 28, he's already told us nothing is against us. Even those things that appear to be against us, those difficult things, those difficult circumstances, God is using them all for good so that nothing will frustrate his purposes. So if you find yourself in some tight spot or if you find yourself sideways with some individual, anyone, you feel like that person is now suddenly your opponent, now suddenly against you. In reality, they might be in their own hearts, but they're not. In reality, no matter what their intent is, God is using that person for your good so that you can say with the Apostle Paul, you are now well content with whatever is brought into your life because when you're weak, you're strong. Even through all of their efforts to harm you, to overthrow you, it can only go as far as God determines. And He'll only let it go if it is for your good, for your edification, for your maturity, for your growth. So no one can be against you since God is for you. But Paul doesn't leave it just to that. He asks a second question. He asks, who, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This question has uh, got more to it, if you will, but it's following the same line of reasoning as Paul's first. It's sort of arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God has already given you the greatest gift possible, will he now turn around and show himself miserly in distributing lesser gifts to you? It's not a matter of limited resources. God doesn't have to curtail his giving because he's already exhausted his bank account. It's just a matter of his generosity. If he's already proven himself to be generous, will he not also prove to be so in the future? If he's shown himself so generous as to give his own son, do you think he would withhold other gifts? Again, if Paul had just asked, well, I mean, will not God give you all things? You might sort of hesitate 
You might come back with all sorts of replies. You might ask, well, I don't understand, but because of how much I already owe him, I can't imagine him giving me any more because he deserves all my best efforts, but I continually give him half-hearted returns because he asks for perfect obedience and I keep on drifting into waywardness because he asks for all of my love and I keep setting my eyes on false idols. He asks for all these things. I mean, I can think of all kinds of reasons why God wouldn't give me all things. But his question isn't just simply, will he not give you all things? His question is, if he has already, if he is already in your sinfulness, as back we saw in Romans chapter 5, even while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. If he has already given you his own son, then why wouldn't he go on and give you all things? He's not simply asking if God will give us all things. He's framing it first with this truth of what he's already given. And these aren't just equal gifts. These aren't slightly less precious gifts. What he's already given to you is more precious by a mile than anything that you might think you need right now. And if he's already given that, how would he withhold any kind of lesser gift? It'd be like a billionaire buying a new dream home and then trying to furnish it with cardboard pieces. It doesn't make any sense. If he's got unlimited resources and he's already lavished on you the most generous thing he could give, he's already proven his generosity. And how will he not come along with all the petty little things that are coming up against you each day? How will he not... How will he not also give those things out of his grace? Wouldn't make any sense. So if God's already done this, this most unspeakably generous gift in rescuing you out of your situation and providing for your temporary need and all of those things are small, small, small by comparison. So small that he, I should say not so small that he doesn't notice them. He knows every hair of your head. He knows the sparrow when it falls to the ground. But they're so small that he would never begrudge giving them to you. If you are familiar with 1 Corinthians, you cannot help but think of that verse at the end of chapter 3. It sounds very similar to this when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.21, So let no one boast in men as if they give you anything. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So so God has given you all things and just as much he has claimed you as his own. And he would no sooner give up his claim on you or no sooner give up his claim on Christ than he would to fail to give you all things. So Paul's telling us in the most conclusive proof that he can that God's generosity cannot be quenched. Not only by this argument from the greater to the lesser, but just by the very example of what he's saying here. And don't miss what Paul is saying to us here. It wasn't Judas who gave up Christ. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. God gave up his own son. 
God is the one who gave him over to torture. God did not spare his own son. He uses that phrase, his own son, to speak about this unique relationship. Because whereas you and I are adopted sons or daughters into the kingdom of God, this is his only begotten son whose relationship is eternal and unmatched and ineffable. God's undisputed son, the delight of his heart, God was pleased with him in every way. And yet, God did not spare him. Like a judge who doesn't spare a criminal from his punishment or a parent who doesn't spare his child some form of suffering or doesn't shield them from it. God didn't shield his son, his own son, from suffering. He didn't spare him. He didn't spare him, and so it's no surprise that if God didn't spare his own son, it's no surprise that he doesn't sometimes refuse to spare us. If he did not spare his own son from rejection, from ridicule, from poverty even, from persecution, he didn't spare him, and yet none of that was a sign that God had any kind of ill will toward his son. God had set aside his purpose for his son. God didn't spare him, but he didn't reject him either. In fact, he highly exalted him in the end so that we can take hope not only by the fact that God has already given us this precious gift, we can take hope by the fact that his own beloved son he subjected to suffering. And yet with full love and purpose and eternal glory. Thirdly, Paul asks another question related to the work of Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who'll bring a charge? Many would want to, no doubt. Your enemies, your detractors, they would want to bring a charge. They would want to point out your many faults, highlight your inconsistencies. They'd want to exalt themselves as more noble, more faithful, more compassionate, or more, I don't know, whatever it might be, more worthy than you, they would see it as their place to bring a charge to disqualify you as the object of God's favor. Or Satan would want to bring a charge. We know he is the devil, the diabolos, the accuser of the brethren, and so he accuses you before God like he accused Job before God. He accuses you in your own conscience even. Or for that matter, we could even add ourselves because sometimes we accuse ourselves. We know our faults. We know our weaknesses. We know our stumbling. There are so many, we couldn't begin to count them all. But in God's courtroom of salvation... Paul's point here is that you have already been declared free. Who will bring a charge? It is God who justifies. You've already been justified. No accuser, in other words, is now going to barge into the courtroom at the last minute bringing any kind of evidence that hasn't already been sufficiently accounted for in your case. And God, the ultimate judge, is the one who has declared his verdict and it will not be reversed. He has justified. 
By the way, by taking all the punishment on himself. Even if someone were to bring up a charge that theoretically was overlooked, it wouldn't change anything since Jesus Christ presented himself, or better yet, God presented Christ as the recipient of all punishment for you. No matter how many they were, no matter what they were, as we saw back in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation, that's just a big word for simply a means of satisfaction. God put forward His Son to satisfy all the demands of His law, to satisfy all the demands of punishment, so that even if someone did bring an accusation that, as I said, theoretically has been overlooked, it would simply be laid on Christ, and your justification would be sure. You've received it as a gift by faith, Paul says. Forgiveness through the death of Christ, your sins completely removed, all accusations wiped away. And God is able to satisfy the demands of justice because of that, because He made a provision in His law for a sacrifice. And He's also able to justify or to forgive those who place faith in Christ. So no one can condemn. God's verdict has already been given. No one can say the sacrifice of God's Son was not enough. And fourthly, Paul restates a similar question. Who who is to condemn, he says? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, many might want to condemn, but how can they in light of what Paul says? Because first of all, Christ is the one who died. He He bore our punishment, as we saw back in verse 3 of chapter 8 here, by sending His own Son to die in the flesh, God sufficiently condemned sin in the flesh, completely wiped it away. And secondly, Paul says, more than that, that's not the end of the story. He didn't just die, but He was raised, meaning His death was not just some heroic act, a symbolic act of heroism, it was a real defeat of sin or a real defeat of death and since death is a direct consequence of sin if you are defeated by death then you are still defeated by sin but if you conquer death you have conquered sin that's the logic of the scripture so by defeating death Jesus Christ proves that he's defeated sin the only one who ever has and now Paul says He's at the right hand of God, suggesting this place of honor and authority so that no one will ever bring a charge or an accusation or an attempt, or as Jesus says in the Gospels, no one will snatch us out of his hands. And he is indeed, Paul says, fourthly, interceding for us there. His work on our behalf is not done in that sense. Is not as if we were his momentary object of love 2,000 years ago, but he has now changed his focus somewhere else. Because we're told that inasmuch as he went to the cross for us, he now intercedes for us with the same purpose. 
The writer of Hebrews says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the idea is that his living presence before God is a constant reminder that any accusation, any condemnation that might be brought against you is absolutely subsumed because it's completely satisfied in him. So we're more than conquerors because the work of Christ on the cross guarantees it. But also, we can add secondly, we're more than conquerors because the eternal love of Christ guarantees it. Paul sort of he, he sort of wraps all of this up with this fifth question in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's really the ultimate question that summarizes all these things. Paul's now bringing all this to bear on the realities of life in light of all of these undeniable facts and accomplishments of Christ on the cross. Is there anything left that can indicate or really mean that we're separated from Christ's love. Paul gives a whole list of possibilities in verse 35, seven of them, but none of them mean anything in regards to our love from Christ or our separation from Him. He sort of begins with tribulation, which would be that general category head, this all kinds of suffering that is encompassed, all kinds of pain that is, that is meant or is uh, referred to by that word in the New Testament. Really introduces all the specific examples, tripulations such as, secondly, Paul says, distress, which is a word for a narrow space, and it has the idea of being trapped, trapped in some circumstance, unable to maneuver, helpless to do anything, powerless against those who are in authority over you, Powerless against those who are taking advantage of you. Powerless against those who are attacking you. Frustrated because perhaps you want to flee or you want to defend yourself or fight back, but completely lacking in the means to do so. This is the word that was used of Joseph in the book of Genesis where people were constantly overpowering him, where he's caught up again and again where in situations where people... Groups or individuals, because of their authority or because of their number, were, were violating his rights or, or demeaning him or mistreating him again and again. Or Paul uses it for himself in 2 Corinthians 6 when he described his life as full of these kinds of constricting circumstances. Or 2 Corinthians 12 where he declared that he is content with these kinds of circumstances because through his weakness, God has put on display his strength. Paul adds to it not just distress, but he says persecution, which is any sort of organized program to oppress, to harass people, which for most of us has only been known by some distant Story, but is fast becoming the reality of what we must be ready to face. You may not have known it much in your lifetime, but you, if you're a parent especially, 
You have the grave responsibility of preparing your children to live in a world where persecution isn't going to be some story they read in a magazine. It will be their life. And all of this in an attempt to get them to question the legitimacy of their faith and to doubt the reasonableness of their devotion to Christ. But although the situation around us might be changing, Paul's message is God's love is not. It can't separate us. Not even during, as he says, famine or hunger would be maybe a better translation. It's the general word for hunger. It's not necessarily brought on by the forces of nature. It's not as if there's some worldwide uh, uh, plight or failure of crops. But Paul probably has in mind the deprivation of food that often comes with persecution. Same word he uses to describe his own plights in 2 Corinthians 11 where he says he, he suffered hunger for the sake of Christ. Or nakedness, which is again just probably having the general connotation of deprivation. You, you could render this maybe even just generally poverty as it's, as it's uh, translated in 2 Corinthians. Because of oppression... Because you lose your possessions or you lose even your employment and it's all taken away from you. If not through persecution, just the general difficulties of life that bring upon distress and poverty. And it is in no way, Paul says, a sign that God has separated his love from you. That you're less loved than someone who is wealthy or comfortable in their means. It means Nothing else but that God is sovereignly preparing you a different way for whatever good purposes He has. But His love is steadfast nevertheless. And Paul adds to that danger, which word, again, a word just a reference to his own circumstances. Paul described his life as one in danger from rivers and in danger from robbers. Danger, if you will, from natural forces and danger from from individual forces, robbed, attacked, or sometimes just flooded over in his travels. Didn't matter. All of this never meant that God's loving purpose was sidetracked. Or even Paul ends with this last word, the sword, specifically a word for a short sword, often referred to, excuse me, often used as a, the the. the tool for assassination or execution. So, so this is a reference to death and particularly a violent death. Even violent attack is no sign that God's love has been severed. In fact, Paul quotes there in verse 36 from Psalm 44, a testimony not only of this psalmist but of many through the ages for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, they, they feel like sheep standing helplessly in the queue waiting for the slaughterhouse. Nothing they can do. Like the saints in Hebrews 11 where the writer says suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. 
These are the ones that wandered about in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves. It's been the testimony of saints through the ages. And yet that sense of helplessness, even that lack of immediate rescue in your circumstances, it is no sign that God's love or God's eternal purpose has been thwarted. Instead, Paul says in verse 37, no. In fact, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. See, Paul coins a unique word here. Not found anywhere else. It just basically means to overconquer. To overwhelmingly conquer. You say, how can that be? I mean, how can we be losing so badly to so many in all the circumstances of life and yet be called more than a conqueror? Well, I think think John MacArthur summarizes it best with two points. First of all, even because through our suffering, we are being strengthened. Our faith is being deepened. We're coming into more fellowship with God. Our character is being shaped and refined. Our endurance is being built. Our compassion is being expanded. Our hope for glory is being enriched. So whereas those outside of Christ, this kind of ongoing and sustained trial throughout their life might just obliterate them, dishearten them, for us, although the outer man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day. So we have this treasure that all things are working together for our good. No good thing is ever lost. It cannot because it is secured by God's love and God's purpose. But secondly, not only in the trial, but beyond the trial, we are guaranteed a reward. We're guaranteed a reward. We're more than conquerors because no matter what is stripped away from us, we will be abundantly rewarded, abundantly restored in eternity. Mark 10, Peter said to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Nothing we give up for the sake of Christ is ever lost to us. Nothing you give up for the sake of Christ is ever lost to you. You're more than a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. You can't lose in service to Christ. So you overwhelmingly conquer both now as recipients of God's grace and work through your suffering and eternally through His rewards. And Paul finishes it all up by saying, for I'm I'm sure, I'm confident that neither death nor life, that is the whole span of our existence, nor angels or rulers, probably good angels and demons, There, that would include even demonic 
doctrines that are sown in the pulpits of churches, things present nor things to come. He looks at all of time, all things from now to the end, nor powers, which is a word really in the New Testament for miracles uh, throughout the book of Acts, the Gospels, even in Paul. This word's often used for miracles, or even height or depth, anything spatially, anything you can imagine anywhere in the world. And just for good measure, nor anything else in all creation. None of it will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are secured forever by the eternal and unshakable reality of God's love which he set on us before the foundation of the world, he's already established for us in his plan for our glory. Folks, this is a theology we need. This is a theology the church needs to prepare us for whatever suffering might be coming our way. Not some shallow attempt to accommodate our views to the world so that we find acceptance Not some glib notion that somehow we will overcome the hostilities of of this culture or this nation or this time to the point where they will tolerate, maybe even respect our faith. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. What we need is a theology that loudly proclaims That even when none of that happens, we still are conquerors. That even when the world is hurling everything it has at you, you still are conquering. You're more than conquering. Through Him who loved us. As He works out His good purposes in us now. And He guarantees them through all eternity. I guess the real question goes all the way back to verse 31. If Christ is for you, who can be against you? The real question is, is Christ for you? Is Christ for you? Are you one of His? Have you made Him or bowed before Him, I should say, as your Lord? Confessed Him as your Lord and Savior? That's the only way to be in Christ. Confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. Believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And then you're in Christ. And he's for you. If you're not, a sad reality both now in all of your pain and suffering and in eternity is he is against you. You're under his wrath. And you're facing his judgment. Our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here in that condition. That you would respond to Christ with confession, with humility, with repentance. Placing your faith in Him so that your sins are wiped away. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and with a song. Father, we're grateful, so thankful for the love, the unshakable love No ill circumstance, no discomfort can come our way that wasn't ordained by you to bring about character, to bring about endurance, 
to bring about patience. Lord, may you have your perfect work in us through all of this pain. And may we never waver, and may we never doubt your loving purposes so that both now and in all eternity, no matter what our circumstances, we sing of your love for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.